All right. I hope you are doing well. Uh, if you are, I'm so glad to hear that. Uh, I don't want to ruin that for you, but I'm willing to risk it. We're going to do a little bit of a pop quiz. Is that okay? Can you guys do a pop quiz with me? Uh, we've been in this series. This is the sixth week now. This has been our uh, anthem, our series thesis. Can you say it from memory? Let your identity drive your... All right. All right. We're doing okay. The next one's a little bit harder, Okay. Next one's a little bit harder. There's a verse I've asked you to memorize, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Um, it says this. Okay, there we go. We got the answers there. Uh, it says this, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. How'd you do? All right, not too painful, right? So over this series, every week, this is what we're trying to do. We're trying to draw out more and more. We're trying to tease out more and more all the implications of our identity, what it means to find our identity in Jesus. And we talk about identity. This is what we mean. It is the story that we tell ourselves about ourselves. And that's not something that's unique to Jesus followers. That is for everybody. This is your identity. The story you tell yourself about yourself. And that story is the major factor that shapes and frames all the things, all the things that we do. If you were here last week, I hope that you remember this. Jesus is the lens through which we see ourselves. And we are the lens through which others see Jesus. If I have, if you have, if we have given our allegiance to Jesus then looking to him is where we find the true story of us. All right? So we're going to remember that Jesus is the lens through which we see ourselves and experiencing us, experiencing what we are like should be, experiencing what Jesus is like. We are the lens through which others see Jesus. And so I want to ask you a question straightforward. What is it that you want people to see? What is it that you are intentionally working toward, hoping that people see. Now, I don't want to be a pushy person. I hope you don't perceive me as a pushy person. And yet tonight, this is what I'm going to do right now. This is what we're going to do. I'm going to intentionally kind of prod and nudge us to get messy honest with our answer to this question. What is it that we want people to see in us? And in our country, in our culture, American Christians, we tend to answer this question in one of three ways. When it comes to engaging with culture and representing Jesus, we tend to answer this in one of three ways. There's a role that we're trying to play. There might be more than the three things I'm going to put on the screen, but there's at least these three things. Warriors, secret agents, and ambassadors. Which one do you want to be? Now, a warrior, people who see themselves as warriors, and they're representing Jesus as that way. It's devotion to Jesus is expressed. Devotion to Jesus is expressed by really doing battle with those who threaten the rights of Christians and who threaten the common good. Secret agents, these are the ones who devotion to Jesus is expressed whenever they're in safe company. And ambassadors, devotion to Jesus is expressed through loving God in the way that he defines it and loving all others at all times, even when it's risky. Which one of these three best describes you? Which one of these three do you want to describe you? And what is it that shapes and frames your thinking about what your answer to this question should be? It's our hope that during this, season, during this series, 
the letter of 1 Peter does exactly that, that it frames for us how we see which role we should be playing. Starts off like this tonight, 1 Peter uh, chapter 3 says, finally, all of you be like-minded. And you know what that means, being like-minded? It means there can be diversity in what we think, but there shouldn't be diversity in how we think. Our thinking is shaped by Jesus Christ and by his word. Finally, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. When this is the story we're telling ourselves about ourselves collectively, when we're looking to Jesus to see who we are, the the activities, the actions, the attitudes that come flowing out of us are things that look like this, sympathy, love, compassion, and humility. And when this is the story that we are telling ourselves about ourselves, we don't need a reason to do these things. All that we need is an opportunity. We don't need a reason to be loving. All we need is an opportunity. And believe it or not, tonight, we have an opportunity right here, right now. I want to introduce you uh, to a little guy. His name is Ari. And isn't he a cute little boy? Ari is the grandson of Sharon Chambers and Craig Chambers. They're a couple who, who are part of our church family. They are in the category of one another who we should be loving on. And little Ari, this cute little guy, he's suffering uh, from something that's called hyper-IgM syndrome, and he is in need of a bone marrow transplant or peripheral blood uh, stem cell transplant. I hope I got that right. If you're medically trained, you can evaluate me later. But all I know is this, this little guy, he is in need. He's in need of, of someone to, to, to be a donor for him. I've tried. I found out I'm too old, which was really a bummer for me. Um, <clears throat> my daughter has been telling me I'm too old, but now I realize I actually am too old for some stuff. You have to be healthy and 18 to 40 to be able uh, to be a donor. So this is what we're doing as a church. We're creating an opportunity out in the lobby after the service. If you're between the ages of 18 and 40 and you're healthy and you're willing, would you explore being a donor to love on this little guy who is connected and a part of our church family. And for those of you who are like me, and for whatever reason you're just not able to, could we rally around and pray for this family and pray for this little guy that he gets what he needs? Love one another. We don't need a reason. All we need is an opportunity. We don't need a reason. All we need is an opportunity. And here's the deal, and you know this, we're not always able to do all the good things we want to do and all the loving things we want to do, but whenever we're able to, it is a no-brainer. It's an absolute no-brainer when we know who we are in Christ. We don't need a reason. All we need is an opportunity to express sympathy, love, compassion. And what was the other word? Humility. Can, it, can we talk about this for a few minutes? How do you think we're doing with this one right now? Do you think that humility is at an all-time high? Can you even ask a question like that about humility, about, about being at an all-time high? How are we doing with humility? Like, is this what, it's just, we're so golden on this. We've got so much humility going around, we don't even need to talk about it. Or should it, does it deserve a little attention? Probably deserves a little attention. Now, it wouldn't surprise me if any of you are thinking, Rick, are you the guy Rick, are you the guy to talk to us about humility? And if you're thinking that, if you're wondering, Rick, are you really the guy to talk to us about humility? The only reason that you're asking yourself that question is because you don't know me well enough yet. But if you took the time to really get to know me, you would not wonder if I'm the wrong guy to talk about humility. You'd be certain that I'm the wrong guy to talk about humility. (laughs) 
I'm not talking about it tonight because I think I'm a good example. I'm talking about it because it's in God's Word and it is so good. And remember, Jesus is the lens through which we see ourselves. This is about looking to Him. And Jesus is the one who voluntarily gave up all of His rights and privileges as God. Jesus is the one who volunteered to be a servant for us. Jesus is the one who volunteered for the cross. His kindness, his humility is astounding. He is humility personified. And when we see that, it begins to transform us. And I know that we know, we look at it, we say, humility is good. We celebrate Jesus' humility. We know it's a good thing. It doesn't always make it easy to choose it, does it? And humility is not like your eye color. It's not like something either you were just born with it and, or you don't have it. It's, it's, it's a choice. It's not something that happens to us. Humility is a choice. And if there's anyone thinking, it's just so tough to choose humility, I get it. But I want to share with us one perspective. You note takers, write this down. The only difference between humility and humiliation is who chooses it. The only difference between humility and humiliation is who chooses it. This right here is very different from this right here. But one of the key differences is this right here is someone else does this to us. Someone else chooses this. But humility is something that we get to choose. And really what we see right here, this is a wrestling match about where our significance is found. And to the degree, to the degree that we know that our significance is found in Jesus, to that degree, we are able to choose this. And to the degree that we know that our significance is found in Jesus, to that same degree, we are immune to this. So what does it mean? What does it mean to choose humility? What does it mean to be humble? Again, we're going to look at Jesus and there are a couple of observations that I think that we can make that really shine a spotlight on this for us. Number one, would you write this down? Humility refuses to assert our value at someone else's expense. Humility is refusing to assert our value at the expense of someone else. And the next point is going to sound almost identical to this. It's not just saying it in a different way, but it's another aspect of what it means to be humble. Humility insists we assert someone else's value even at our own expense. This is my question. Isn't this what Jesus did for us? I bet there are many of us in this room right now that we could tell stories of how the kindness and the humility of Jesus in our own life that it transformed us but it didn't just transform our lives the humility of Jesus transformed human history did you know did you know that there was a time that humility was considered a vice and not a virtue humility did not become a normal thing until the spread of the gospel message became common J.H. Eliot was a biblical scholar and author. He helps bring this into view for us. This is what he says. In the highly competitive and stratified world of Greco-Roman antiquity, only those of degraded social status were humble, and humility was regarded as a sign of weakness and shame, an inability to defend one's honor. Thus, the high value placed on humility by Israelites and Christians is remarkable. There was a time in world history where humility and humiliation were considered identical, but that did not change until the gospel message spread. 
I'm curious, how many of you, like, you, it just bothers you when there's a public figure and they've done something wrong and everybody knows they've done something wrong and how do they apologize? Listen, if anybody was offended by what I did, I apologize. Why do we hate that? Why do we just kind of despise that lack of humility? And why is it that we admire it so much when someone has power or privilege or some sort of position or wealth or some sort of advantage? Why do we admire it so much when they use that to serve the good of others when, when they don't expect anything in return? Why do we admire that kind of humility so much? Biological evolution cannot explain that. Social evolution cannot explain why we esteem humility so highly. It did not become a virtue. It did not become a compliment. It did not become a good thing until the spread of the gospel, and it's all because of Jesus. Now, if I have not convinced you yet, I've got one more thing that I want to use to try and convince you why we should choose humility. In the New Testament, what animal are Christians compared to? Sheep. And Jesus is our shepherd. I get a little reminder of why probably choosing humility is a good idea. It's a video. Check it out. We got a little ditch here. Shepherd, shepherd boy is pulling the sheep out. Everything's great, right? Don't you love it? Back in the ditch again. If that doesn't represent the Christian life, I don't know what else does. We are this one. <laughs> We're not the sheep. Jesus is the shepherd. I mean, we are the sheep. Jesus is the shepherd. And we are 100% dependent on him. We don't need any other reason. We don't need any other reason to choose humility other than that because we are totally dependent on him. And notice what flows next. After talking about humility, what Peter writes next, he says this, Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. The only way to take this seriously, the only way we can take this seriously is if we break up with the idea that we should give people what they deserve. Love is giving people what they need, not necessarily what they deserve. And humility is remembering this. Jesus took what we deserve so that we can have what only he deserves. And that gives us a brand new identity that results in a radical new kind of activity of humility and forgiveness. Now let's remember who Peter learned this from. He, learned, he was there. He was sitting in the crowd. He was close enough. He was close enough to hear all the inflections in Jesus' voice. He was, close, he, he was close enough to know what Jesus smelled like that day when Jesus said these words. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. You know why this is so hard? This is so hard because the people who we would label as enemies in our lives, they are the people who would cause us to feel insignificant. They're the people who would cause us to feel insecure. They're the people who bring dissatisfaction into our lives. And with eyes wide open, knowing all of that, Jesus said, love them, do good to them, bless them, and pray for them. Some years ago, I came across the story of a guy who decided to take these words of Jesus seriously. 
And so he had a guy at work who he considered an enemy, and he decided he was going to start praying for this enemy. And not like a safe prayer, he just prayed that God would bless his enemy at work with financial blessings. And wouldn't you know it, one day, out of the blue, this guy he had been praying for got an unexpected windfall of cash. And now he's mad because God answered his prayer. Now he had to pray that God would help him be happy about that to really love this guy. But thinking about that, thinking about Jesus' words and thinking about a story like that, I've got a challenge for us. Who's an enemy? Who's an enemy that you have? And not somebody, the Packers, okay. (laughs) Who's an enemy that you have? And you don't have to think about, don't, don't think about the worst person in your life, the person who's caused you the most hurt in life. You don't have to go there. But who's somebody that makes you mad? Who's somebody that when they're around, you can't control your face? Right? Who's somebody that you would never say it out loud, but on the inside you secretly wish something a little bad happened to them? All right, you got that person in mind. How are you going to pray for their blessing? And not like some safe prayer, and certainly not a passive-aggressive prayer, God, would you just show them how right I am, but how are you going to specifically identify the blessing that you want your heavenly Father to pour out on this person. Will you pray for that? And if you're thinking right now, Rick, no, I'm not going to do that. I don't want to do that. I get it. Listen, no, you're not going to get any judgment from me. This is Jesus' idea, not mine. <laughs> but if that's your response, would you be willing to consider this prayer? Jesus, I don't want to. I don't even want to want to. But I choose to trust you with my significance and my security. I choose to trust that you want my satisfaction and my fulfillment. Jesus, I know you want my satisfaction and my fulfillment in life more than I do. And if you're saying this is the way forward, I'll take a step. I even printed this prayer out for you on your notes if you picked up notes tonight. Would you take it with you? And would you begin to pray this prayer? And as you're mulling this prayer over, I want to give you something to write down. You can't battle and bless someone at the same time. You can only pick one. You can't battle and bless someone at the same time. You can only pick one. And I get it. Some of us were thinking, if I do this right here, if I choose to, if I choose to try and bless someone, if I choose to try and pray for their blessing, isn't that going to result in a bad experience for me? It is as if Peter anticipated that, that reaction, that objection. He immediately writes this next, for whoever would love life and see good days. If you want satisfaction in life, whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. Does it sound like he's advocating that we would be a warrior or an ambassador? For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Over the course of this series, I said, if you really want to understand Peter, you've got to know and understand the Old Testament. This is Peter quoting the Old Testament book of Psalms, specifically Psalm 34. It's Psalm 34 was written by David when he was surrounded by adversity, and there were enemies who wanted to get him. And one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible is found in Psalm 34. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He saves those 
who are crushed in spirit. I do not think it is by accident that this is the chapter that Peter chose to quote. And maybe some of you guys can relate to me, but one of my big goals in life is to be as comfortable as possible. I love comfort. I love to be comfortable. But God's intention is to bring us comfort. And the comfort that he brings is so much better than the comfortability that we often seek. Peter continues by writing this, who is going to harm you? Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. Even if the worst thing that you could imagine happens, you should not be afraid because you are blessed in Christ. There are too many messages of fear out there right now. You find it online, you find it on social media, you find it on cable news. There are too many Christian talking heads. There are too many pastors who are trafficking in fear, and the message of fear is anti-Jesus. Even if the worst thing that we imagine would, should happen, we should not be afraid because of how blessed we are in Christ. We are secure in Christ. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer. Does it sound like we can get away with being secret agents? Have we got to be ready to give an answer? Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with, what are these words? gentleness and respect. Does that sound like a warrior to you? We do this with gentleness and respect. It sounds like Peter wants us to be ambassadors of what Christ is like. Keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, this is important, for it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. This is the second time. This is the second time in this letter that Peter has put a spotlight on, hey, it's better if you should suffer for, for doing good than if you should suffer for doing wrong. It's as if Peter is saying, we need to understand the difference between being persecuted for our allegiance to Jesus and people mistreating us because we are can I say the word obnoxious? So would you write this down? The presence of suffering doesn't indicate anything about us, but the reason for it may. The presence of suffering doesn't indicate anything about us, but the reason for it may. And I want to make that clear by telling you a couple of stories. I want to introduce you to a pastor friend of mine from southern India. His name is Matthew Matai. This is him and me there. I'm going to ask that you forgive. Just overlook the hat. I was going through a phase. Um, <laughs> Matthew Matai, um, he walked away from a very uh, lucrative career here in the United States. Uh, he was a computer scientist so that he could go and be um, a pastor in southern India. 
He's led um, many thousands of people to come to faith in Christ and be baptized uh, there in southern India. He's just a brilliant pastor, a leader of leaders, an equipper of pastors. And I was talking to him when I was there in southern India, and he told me about a visiting preacher who came in and wanted to preach in one of the local villages, but this visiting preacher waited until they were doing one of their sacred, they, they were celebrating a sacred holiday, and he went in with a bullhorn and began telling them how wrong they were and they needed to stop. What do you think happened? They beat him up. And I asked Matthew Matai, do you think that was persecution? And he said, no. That guy got beat up for being rude. He wasn't retaliated against for his allegiance to Jesus. He was retaliated against because of the way that he engaged people. This weekend, I saw a post from a very well-known pastor in our country who took a photo of a religious text from another religion and described it as toilet paper. He's going to get some blowback. And the blowback that he gets, it will not be persecution for his allegiance to Jesus. It'll be blowback because he was obnoxious. This is another pastor friend of mine from southern India named Jebaraj Finn. And Jebaraj uh, comes from an upper a class family in India, and he walked away from a medical career so that he and his wife could pastor in an urban neighborhood in a city uh, in southern India. One day, there was a mob that was incited to religious violence, and they vandalized and damaged the, the church building for where they do their ministry. The irony is, is that every day, Jebaraj and his wife feed the kids of the men in that mob while they're out in the fields outside of town working all day. That is persecution. But Jebaraj and his wife decided that the ministry that they were doing was so important that they pawned her wedding jewelry so that they could fund the repairs and keep the ministry going. You cannot battle and bless people at the same time. You can only pick one. And if it's hard to understand, why would they choose to do that? It's because they understood what we're trying to understand. Jesus is the lens through which we see ourselves, and we are the lens through which others see Jesus. What is it that we want them to see? Now, up until this point, I think a lot of the stuff that Peter has given us and the section that we're covering today um, it's pretty practical. Some of it might be challenging. Some of it might be convicting, but it's very practical. With what comes next in chapter 3, Peter turns the corner and he gets a bit theological, and i got to warn you, it might get a little weird. Are you ready? After being made alive, he, Jesus, went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight and all, were saved through water, and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you. Also, not the removal, <clears throat> that saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers and submission to him. There are a couple of tough questions that come out of this passage. Number one, did Jesus go to hell? 
Now, if anyone ever was a part of a church community or church culture where you recited or you had to memorize the Apostles' Creed, there is a section in the Apostles' Creed that talks about we believe in Jesus, and it even says that he descended into hell. Now, when the Apostles' Creed was originally written, that line was not in there. Sometime later, it was added, and it was added because of a response to this verse right here. After being made alive, he went, Jesus went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. And this is the idea is, did Jesus, did Jesus actually go to hell when he died on the cross? And a lot of people kind of wrestled through trying to understand, is that what this means? It's been confusing. And so I want to bring some clarity tonight. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you what I think. It, I'm, I'm going to tell you what I think, okay? And so if you want to, get your, get your pen out. I'm going to go slow because this is complex and i got to go slow. I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't know. I just about everybody I know says, I don't know. One of the most famous theologians in all of human history is a guy named Martin Luther. He's the guy who kicked off the Reformation. You want to know what he said about this? He says, this is a strange text and certainly a more obscure passage than any other passage in the New Testament. I still don't know for sure what the apostle meant. I don't know. I don't know. And if, you, if you're doing the, the First Peter uh, series with your small group and you've got uh, one of the booklets that we produced uh, in the commentary for this week, uh, there, it, we give some, some options, some different ways that people have viewed this. I don't mind giving you a few more. Here's some common interpretations. One, this is literal. It literally meant that Jesus went to hell and preached the gospel. No, it's figurative. Jesus preached through the prophets, e.g. Noah, kind of like back in the day when Noah was preaching, that was Jesus preaching through Noah. And the third option is, well, it's figurative. Jesus' resurrection was a victory proclamation. Which one is right? I don't know. I kind of lean towards this one, but I could be wrong. Can I tell you why that doesn't bother me in the slightest? Because we don't have to know the meaning to know the point. We don't always have to know the meaning of a passage to know the point of the passage. And this is one of the times that that is absolutely true. How do we know what the point of the passage is? Well, Peter told us just one sentence earlier. He said this, for Christ also suffered. Are you going to suffer? Yes. But Christ suffered too. He suffered once for sins, for the righteous, for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. The whole point is this. The resurrection changes everything. Let's go to the end. We win. Because of the resurrection, Jesus wins. And if we are in Jesus, we win. And maybe we suffer. Maybe we suffer in life so badly that it actually kills us. There's no reason to be afraid because death is not the end. Because of the resurrection, we know there is life to come. Jesus wins. We're in him. We win. That's the point. Don't be afraid. Be encouraged. So what's the second tough question? The second tough question from this passage is this. Does baptism save us? And it's really driven by what Peter has to say here. He's talking about the flood, the, the flood back in the day of Noah. This water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, first reading, I could totally understand what someone says. Yeah, it sounds like he's saying baptism saves you. Let's make a couple of observations. Number one, he connects baptism to symbolism. 
He says the flood waters symbolize baptism, but does baptism symbolize anything? If you were to read Romans chapter 6, this is what you're going to find. That going down underneath the water symbolizes the death of Jesus and dying to an old way of life. Coming up out of the water symbolizes the resurrection of Jesus and us having new life. Baptism is a symbol. And then Peter says that baptism is a pledge. It's like a pledge of allegiance in faith in Christ. And really, what is it that is the power of salvation? It's the resurrection. Over the past few weeks, we've done this a couple of times. We've said these are the rules for translation. We call it hermeneutics 101. And one of the rules of hermeneutics is this, use clear passages to interpret unclear ones. Let's use this now. Let's use a crystal clear passage. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So salvation comes by placing our faith in Jesus. We could go to the night that Jesus was crucified, and he's hanging on the cross, and there's a thief hanging next to him that says, Jesus, will you remember me? And what does Jesus say? Man, if you can get off this cross and get baptized. No. He says, today, you will be with me in paradise. Because salvation is accomplished by what Jesus did on the cross and his resurrection. We receive that as a gift by placing our faith in him. But baptism, baptism is a deeply profound, meaningful, public declaration to everyone that I am with Jesus. I am in Jesus. And so if I'm talking about you, if you have crossed the line of faith and you have trusted in Jesus and you haven't been baptized, what is keeping you? What is keeping you away from that public celebration? Don't be a secret agent now. Would you step forward and say, I want to get baptized. I want everybody else to know all the joy and the new life that I have found in him. That's what baptism is about. So as we wrap up, I want to end with how we began. What is it that we want people to see? What role do we want to play in how we engage culture and how we represent Jesus? Do we want to be warriors? Do we want to be secret agents? Do we want to be ambassadors? It's interesting to me that in this passage, Peter uses Noah as an example. One of the fascinating things about the area that Peter was writing to in Asia Minor, Noah was the most well-known biblical figure um, of the time. Um, if, you, if you didn't have a Jewish background, you knew who Noah was. If you had nothing to do with Christianity, you knew who Noah was. In Asia Minor, he was recognized as a preacher of righteousness. And so what did Peter do? He recognized something that was valuable and known in that culture, and he used that to help pe point people to Jesus. That's not something that a secret agent does. That's someone who's hiding in fear does. That's not someone who's committed to fighting. That's not what they do. But someone who wants to represent Jesus, who wants to understand the culture that they're in and speak the language of that culture so they can help that people in that culture see Jesus, that's exactly, that's exactly what an ambassador does. So part of what it means to understand who we are in Jesus is to remember that we have nothing to fear we are already fully and perfectly blessed in him. Come what may, we win because he has won. 
So let's answer his call to sympathy, to love, to compassion, to humility, so that other people can experience what he is like when they experience what we are like.